look at a handful of different passages this morning that have to do with our community life. So every fall around this time, because we're launching community groups, which by the way, thank you all, we literally have experience in terms of signups, record numbers in over the past 15 years of our group time here at Christ Community Church. And so we're excited for those who are going to be able to participate in that. And those, of course, start tonight. And so every fall, I like to do at least one sermon that kind of focuses on community life and the value of community. And of course, this fall is no different. We're launching our community groups tonight, and we are talking about community this morning. But I want to put it in a context even larger than just our community life, because I want to put our community life in a context of how we're called as the people of God to bear witness to our faith. I have been uh, pretty open, and to the best of my abilities, I have strove to be uh, somewhat vulnerable with my own story. And uh, when a person does that, you have to process it with your own self-awareness. And so you're bringing a level of critical engagement about your story that really you're the only person that can give, because at the end of the day, you are the one that is most closely, uh, that has the, has the clearest access to thinking about what your motives were when you pr pursued a particular action. Now I'm saying all that to say is that sometimes in doing that, I have miscommunicated and the, and the proof of my miscommunication is not in my words or in my tent, but in intent, but in how someone else has heard me. And so I, I want to be somewhat corrective and say this, just because I engage critically with my own spirituality and the toxic way in which I pursued that spirituality doesn't mean that I'm making a blanket statement that if I couldn't do it healthy, therefore no one's doing it healthy. I am sure that there are gifted people that chose to pursue their spirituality and in particular their practice of evangelism in the ways that I did it, which were not very healthy, and they probably do it in ways that are healthy and effective. And I'm really, when I critique my approach, I don't mean anything about what they are doing. I, I don't know. That is between them and the Lord, the way they choose to bear that witness. But I, 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 I slowly over time began to get uncomfortable with the way I understood evangelism and in the way I was taking in the information to all the personal evangelistic classes that I took, which I loved to take those things because I, I more just enjoyed the confrontation that would take place when I made people angry because of the unhealthy and intrusive ways I would ask them about their spiritual beliefs. Or I would just presume that I knew based on them answering a few questions, I could diagnose whether that their soul would burn in hell for eternity or not. And over time, people resisted that approach. And uh, you, you know how it is, because I've seen some of you catch eye contact with me at Walmart and look away and go down another aisle. I, I know, you know how it is. And, and so, so I am critiquing that. But the other problem I had is over time, as I began to look at the methods that I was taught and then began to reflect on the words of Jesus, it, it seemed that a lot of our witnesses for Christ were very anti-Christ in their demeanor and in the spirit in which the information was given. And, and certainly I think that was true for me. 
Witnessing became, when we got together and we gave our witnessing reports, which I honestly, I loved reporting to the youth group more than I love the actual witnessing. That's when you, that's when the dividends really paid off because then you got to be the Super Bowl quarterback of the evangelical world for just a few minutes anyway. So I, 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 I enjoy going back, but it would all be about what did you say? Did you get these particular points of truth out? No one ever asked, did you listen? Did you hear about their stories? Tell me in your process of sharing the gospel with them, did you discover what they're really afraid of? Did they open up? Were you a safe place where they could share with you their brokenheartedness and you're aware of the last time they wept and why? We didn't care about any of those things. It really wasn't about that. It was just about making sure that we got kind of our trained pitch out. And particularly if we were ever able to use any of our gotchas. You guys remember, if you've ever done evangelism classes, you know, the classes on the gotchas, those were always my favorite. Like, here's a common objection. Here's the scripture and the way that you handle it. And it was just like a list full of gotchas. I mean, I was hungry like a, a wolf listening for an opportunity to jump in with my gotcha. And again, there may be a version of that that can be very healthy. And there may have been generations before us that that worked really well in line with what the Spirit was doing. I can't speak to that. What I can speak to is knowing that it did not make me a lover of humanity. It made me a lover of my ideology. And I enjoyed being an ideological warrior and slaying those who were less prepared for me whenever I created ideological conflict with them. And that's not bearing witness. The second thing that makes me uncomfortable is that if you read the gospels and you read how Jesus answers the questions, how can I be saved? His answers never show up in any single evangelism course or book that I've ever read. And I've read them from the little small pamphlets on you know, the, the physical tips that you can do to manipulate people to a decision, all the way to seminars that told me if I was doing mass evangelism and the crowd is resistant, if I'll just lift my hands up like this while the crowds bowed their heads so that I'm not lying, and I say, oh, I see that hand. It worked 100% of the time. Crowd was back, no one's responding. I'm feeling embarrassed, not gonna get any show. And I would do, I see that hand, and then boom, hand, hand, hand. And I was like, oh my gosh, this stuff works. But see, all of that, these are all crowd manipulation techniques. There's no need for the Holy Spirit if you're gonna argue your way out or manipulate your way to get people to see the reality of your faith. And so the second thing that really bothered me is you go back and read Jesus' answers. And there are a handful of answers he gives. Two that stand out to me are two that I've never, I've never read in any of those books, those pamphlets. Well, that's what I was saying. All the way to, I've got like a 500 pound, I mean 500 pound, it felt 500 pound, 500 page thick book on evangelism in the early and modern churches. I was fascinated with this topic. And all of that literature, the words of Jesus never really came up. And here's what's interesting. Twice when Jesus was asked, how can I be saved? 
Here are the two answers. Here are the two, here are the two answers he's given. Number one, sell everything you have and give it away to the poor and come and follow me. That was Jesus's formula. That's why he's really, I mean, we don't like to say this out loud, but he's just frankly not a very good evangelical. That's not something that we would say to anybody. But the second answer is even more shocking because when a learned man a theologian, a philosopher, a teacher, someone who could understand complex concepts, Nicodemus, ask him, how does that work? How can you be born again? You know what Jesus says? Go back and look at more than just verse 16 in John chapter 3. Read the whole chapter. He looks at this guy and says, it can't be explained. When I read that, I read that over and over and over. I was offended, I was irritated at Jesus for his irresponsibility and the way he answered that man. And then over time I began to think, huh, how am I framing that reality? And I realized the way I approach witnessing is, well, my Lord and Savior says it can't be explained. Lucky for him, about 1,500 years down the road, there's going to be a group of us smarter than him. And we will be able to explain it. In fact, we'll get so nifty of explaining it that we're going to start out with seven steps and work our way down to pamphlets that only have three steps. And so we can make it a formula, we can explain it to people, and that doesn't set well with me. That's not the way Jesus did it. And in fact, it's, not, it's almost like he's making it more difficult for Nicodemus. Eh, sorry, Nick. Can't tell you how that works. But what you can do is start to follow the Spirit. And it's kind of like the wind. Don't really know where it's going. You don't really know what it's coming from, but you can see the results. Rich young ruler, I'll tell you what. The first thing you need to do is get rid of the things that are preventing you to salvation, which is your heart commitment to your material possessions. Go sell all those things, give them away, and then follow me. And when you follow me, you'll know the way of life. This is not how people are invited. In fact, I've even seen some people start their journey with Jesus and be made to feel that it was illegitimate because they couldn't tell you when their spiritual birth date was. Like the rest of us, we had it written on our Bibles, our second birthday, right? We could talk about it, the day we said the prayer and did all of these things. I've seen people belittled and made to wonder about their relationship with God because they just started following Jesus. <laughs> so I think it's really important not that you agree with what I'm saying, but that you allow the consideration of another way of being a witness to Christ. And if it doesn't fit for you, it's fine. There are multiple ways. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is when you're in an environment where only one way is shown, you start to believe that's the only legitimate way of bearing witness. But I think if we go to the scriptures, and particularly if we go back to our Lord and look at the words of Jesus, he has some other things to say about how we effectively bear witness to our faith. And frankly, they're a lot less awkward they're a lot less difficult, and they're a lot less embarrassing than some of the ways that we have learned to practice uh, that witness. So let's take a moment and think about this because all that to say is that I've noticed a theme in my miscommunication. 
Because many of us were taught what comes next after following Christ is read your Bible, attend a church, and learn how to share your faith. Like we, we, we are inundated immediately with that. And so when I say, uh, I'm not really sure that the whole tradition of your faithfulness to Jesus is measured by how much you awkwardly turn the conversation into matters of life and death and heaven and hell, or, or threw a tract out at someone that they could read. And again, you know, I was believers in all these things. I was the toilet evangelist. You guys remember that, right? I would unwind the toilet paper, fill it with tracks, roll it back up, and then fantasize that people would flip one open and read it right there on the spot. And then I would hear Ray Boat singing one day in heaven when someone says, you know, I went to a restroom stall and then thank you would start playing in the background, you know? Um, so I get it. Like I, 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 involved, I got involved in all of that uh, sort of thing. But when I suggest that maybe there's another approach to faithfulness, what is rightly asked of me, and I think it's fair because I haven't been clear, is, okay, wait, if churches, organizations, and groups aren't preoccupied mostly with trying to go out in culture wars and win people over to Christian ideology for salvation, then what is it that comes next? I'm glad you asked. Because once you start getting discipled and you walk into a revelation of how complete your salvation is, how complete you are in Christ, and that, and that your, your, your call now is to rest in Him and, fall, and keep in step with the Spirit, what comes next is a really important question. And all I am asking is you consider another approach to answering that question. I think that what comes next is we actually learn how to become safe people because we haven't allowed our faith to be spiritual bypassing or we just haven't collected a bunch of religious slogans that you can put on bumper stickers. We've really engaged with the gospel. And what does it mean that the Paul teaches you've been giving a new supernatural identity and that is who you are? And as you awaken to that, and as you begin to, to live into that, you become, your insecurity gets healed, and you, you become a safe person. And I think that what's next is we became safe, we become safe people who create safe places where the broken can be touched tangibly with the love of God. That's what we should do. Now, if you want to add tracks and all of that kind of stuff to that, more power to you. But at least do both and see which one is more effective that the better way to go about witnessing is to give yourself over to a process of becoming safe people who create safe places where others can experience the love of God through the love of his people, his body, his church. This is our job description. We are purveyors of a revelation, not information. And as we live from that place of revelation, we can invite others into it. So the big idea is we bear witness to our faith primarily by loving one another. How do you bear witness to your faith? Memorizing all the answers, getting all the best tracks, grabbing your stack of chick tracks. Anybody in here do chick tracks? We're going to have special prayer for those of you who are discipled from chick tracks uh, after the service. Uh, no. You actually can be a really 
effective person by just learning to be decent and nice. That's how you do it. It's the most effective way of doing it. Because whether it's in the church or outside of church, we know there's a shortage of decent and kind people in the world. And if we're decent and kind and we learn how to love one another, that's the primary way we bear witness to our faith. So um, Jesus says this in John 13, 35. Again, <laughs> this, this ought to be the go-to verse in your evangelism classes. I rarely ever heard it mentioned. But Jesus is giving us the secret sauce right here. The, the, yeah, I mean, we look, we love the TED Talk sermons, the one key that will transform your witnessing and make you an effective witness 100% of the time. Just send in your credit card, push this button, and today and today only, there's a $99 discount. Well, here it is for free. The secret. John 13, 35. By this... Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Anybody confused? It seems really simple, doesn't it? Here's the way the New Living Translation says it. Your love for one another will prove the world that you are my disciples. Your love for one another proves to the world that you're my disciples. This is how we bear witness. Honestly, it takes a theologian and a legalist to mess up and make it confusing because this is really cut and dry. It's really evident. And I'm just not sure why complex theological answers trump Jesus's simple answer. When I was in school, one of the things I had to learn in theology class was the order salutis. Are you impressed? You should be. I randomly said something in Latin and made myself look intelligent. It just means the order of salvation. So unlike Jesus who says it can't be explained, I got to read papers on deep thinkers and theologians that actually in very much detail explain what Jesus said couldn't be explained. And then afterwards was told people who don't believe like this really don't get it. They're not really being faithful to Jesus. And I took that in. I believed that and took a job where I thought it was my responsibility to correct all of those people. But then I engaged in life. It's not how life works. And it's fine if you're into the Order Salutis. I, I found that, I mean, the, the nerd in me enjoyed those conversations. And I will say, there is revelation that came from those conversations that I carry in my heart to these, this day. See, I'm Artie's, the new 50-year-old Artie is balanced. He's all about balance. And so, yes, there's some good things there, but really, the moment we recognize that a book or a teaching is adding stuff that goes beyond what Jesus said we needed to do, we really need to stop and pause and ask ourselves, how necessary is this information? Jesus says, the way you bear witness, the way people will know you're my disciples is if you have love for one another. The greatest Christian practice is to love one another. Therefore, living in community is essential for the practice of our faith. Do I think an hour and a half community group carries the total of that? I don't. But do I think it's a start? I do. Is it at least an opportunity to get outside of my home and kind of investigate other relationships? Yes, I think it does do that. In general, we have 
we, it, not just in Christianity, but if you look at human history in general, human tribes have moved away from communal life as we have become more withdrawn and individualistic in our approach to living. In other words, we've left the front porch for the privacy, cent- uh, the privacy fence of the back porch. Like literally our architecture shows it. Uh, there was a day where the front porch was the most important part of your house. Now, I like to go to the back backyard where no one can bother me. But this isn't just, I mean, so it's true even in our architecture. But it, there are still places like when we would go to do uh, inner city outreaches in the urban communities, one of the things that fascinated me is going through certain streets and seeing that people are all gathered on front porches. And it didn't mean that everybody lived in that house. You would just go out on your front porch. If someone else was on their front porch, you walked over and joined them. Same's true uh, when I went to the Philippines just a few years back. The front porch isn't enough. They just keep the front door open. So in the evenings, you just wander in and you just poke your head in the door and say, is there any coffee? And you're obligated if you open the front door to make sure you have coffee. And we would just sit and we would just talk and uh, share our lives. But in general, this has changed. Now, psychologically, we can't get away from it. That's why social media is so unhealthy. What we do is we form new tribes around our gripes and our offenses. And now what we have is this negative energy that's holding our tribe together rather than something proactive. Now, I mean, why do we do that? It's because we can't escape that God-given need for community that has been placed there by being made in the image of God who also reveals himself as a community even though he's one. So we can't escape that, it's still there, but now we have much less healthy tribal connections. So our first order of business, what comes next? Sure, pray, sure, go to church, sure, learn how to share your faith, but really what's most important? The first order of business is to create safe, loving, and mutually serving communities beginning in our homes. We do this in our homes and then we extend the circle outside. Why is that? Because we don't want to wreck our marriages and alienate our children by living non-love and graciousness at home and displaying a fake something else when we get out in front of church people. We don't want to do that. Better to not be engaged in public ministry and learn how to show forgiveness and grace at home. That's the high Priority. That's what gives power to sustain your witness. So we create safe, loving, and mutually serving communities in our homes. Then we are ready to expand that circle of hospitality to include others. And I'm not suggesting that this looks neatly. It's all ebbs and flows. It all happens at the same time. To this day, I still have to apologize to my family for how I treated them as the man God was preparing to come lead the congregation in worship. So I get it, but it gets a little better over time, hopefully, you know? So, so, so we're, co- we're cognizant, we're conscious, we're aware of this dynamic. As a community of faith, we recognize that doing life with others is one of the primary gifts that the Spirit uses to cause us to mature and to experience joy, which is why we bear witness to our faith by loving one another. In fact, There are so many instructions um, to do something to serve one another. In the New Testament alone, these instructions occur over 50 times. There are over 50 
places where one another's are mentioned. Now think about this for just a moment. This is really gonna make a blow to our privatized approach to individual spirituality. This means that you literally cannot be obedient to Christ without other people. Because part of that obedience is expressed in your posture toward the horizontal peers around you. How you treat people in flesh and blood. And if there are only, if there are over 50 commands for how we do that toward others, it means that we need one another in order to walk out our faithfulness to Jesus. It can't, it doesn't matter how great my porch time contemplation is, it's not enough. And it doesn't reach the pinnacle of, of its, of, of its intended purpose until the grace I enjoy in private is shared in public. That's the ultimate reason for it. It's not so that I become a cesspool, but so that I become a river and it just flows over me and through me, refreshes me in the process, but reaches out to others and refreshes them as well. So we literally cannot obey Christ without the presence of one another. Now, I do think evangelicals, for some reason, there's just been this weird way that, well, community is only community if we're holding each other accountable. I got invited to join a men's group one time. <laughs> and I'll never forget, I, I guess he was the leader. He looked around the room and he said, well, boys, what we're gonna do is we wanna gather here once a week and we wanna be real. We wanna be real. We wanna be men. We wanna be real men. We wanna be real Christian men. So we were really manly and Christian. He looked around and said, well, we're gonna do a lot of doing in here is we're gonna chastise one another. And so I left and didn't come back. Um, I'm sure they're having lots of fun chastising one another. But look, if the strength of my flesh can't keep me faithful to Jesus, why do I think the strength of your flesh is gonna keep me faithful to Jesus? I, I, that just doesn't make sense to me. And so there's this weird idea of accountability where we're, we're in community to control one another's beliefs and actions. And I just wanna say, when I'm talking about community, that is not what I'm talking about. Now, I'm not saying that that won't ever call, occur because if, you, if people who love me have pulled me aside and told me, you're doing damage in your relationship to others. You're doing damage in your relationship to your wife. You're doing damage in your relationship to your children. You're doing damage to your body through the choices you are making. I am not saying there's not ever a place, but you know what? They've only come from people who also knew why I weep and what I'm afraid of. They also knew my deepest insecurities. And so there was a relational authority that made that not a power dynamic, but just someone expressing their love and concern for me. I'm not saying that's part of it, but the idea that we're gonna get in and we're gonna short circuit the work of getting to know each other, we're just gonna make each other feel guilty about how we're doing our Christian life. That's not the kind of community I'm talking about. In fact, I love what Derek Velen says, Nowhere in this list of commands do we find anything like put one another in their place or fix one another or judge one another or force one another to do the right thing. The local gathering isn't a place for subjugating or fixing one another. The local gathering is where we worship Jesus together and encourage each other in the ways of Jesus. That's the kind of community that I'm talking about. 
So I've listed here as we get ready to close just seven practices, pretty straightforward, for us to begin to incorporate <clears throat> into our lives. But I feel inadequate to communicate what's in my heart because I want to emphasize these practices reveal who you are. It's really critical that we don't read these commands saying, well, I'm not that, but Jesus wants me to be that, so I'm going to work really hard of making sure I'm that, even though that's not what I believe I am. These commands are in no way difficult or a contradiction to who you are as a renewed person in Christ who is now living a life one with God and your Savior. You have been graciously given a new nature. You are part of the new humanity in Christ. Paul will say it this way, you are a new creation and old things have passed away. These commands reveal who you are. The only conflict they create is with who you think you are. So if you think of yourself as someone less than who Jesus has made you to be, you're going to say, yeah, I'm just selfish and I'm just self-centered and, and I don't care about people, so, but I, but I want to get my, my butt to heaven, so I better make sure that I learn how to obey these things and work really hard to do it. That's not it. You, you still have not experienced the awakening for yourself. You still haven't let the gospel alter your self-identity yet. So when you do, you'll see these commands are not in conflict with who you are. These commands are given to reveal who you are. That's very important when we, come get, when we get ready to approach these things. So, so these, what are the seven practices? Well, number one is loving. John 15, 12 through 14, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So what I want to do is I want you to consider, as you consider these commands, how they really work in our lives. What Jesus said is to love each other in the same way I have loved you. I would submit to you that you are loving people in the same way you believe Jesus loves you. So if that revelation is incomplete, if it still has strings attached, if it's still connected to manipulating your shame in order to motivate your obedience, that's how you're going to love other people. This is why it's so critical that you get this right in reality for your own heart because you can't fake it. If you do not believe that Jesus is kind and gracious with you, you will justify not being kind and gracious with others. And I remember, you know, I, I, I think I've confessed, my view of God for the longest time was that he was like Marlon Brando's The Godfather, right? I mean, what, what more is an offer you can't refuse than follow my religion or I'll burn you forever? That's pretty much an offer you can't refuse, right? Or the more positive version of it, follow my religion and you'll live forever. 
Either one, those are both a deal to be grasped and a deal to be shunned, right? And so, you know, I always thought of that, you know, that, that, that he was kind as long as I returned his favors. Now, if I returned his favors, I kept getting his favors, and that was a good deal. But if I ever couldn't deliver on a favor to return to him, then I was in trouble. Then I needed to look over the shoulder so I don't sleep with the fishes. And, 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 and so when I did that, my theology and my spirituality and my witnessing was full of threats because that's how I thought God loved me. When I realized I was trying to promote ideas on others that I actually don't think are true of myself because you know what? I'm not saying I've lived a consequence-free life, but I am saying in God's grace, those choices, those sins have been redeemed in ways I could not have possibly comprehended when I was in the midst and the grip of my shame. So when we realize the way in which Jesus loves us, then that is the love that we then bring into others. That's the love that we give to others. And that love is willing to even lay down our life for our friends. Whereas right now, we believe we should end a friendship if we disagree on politics. If your theology is different, if you're more progressive or you're more conservative, can't be friends. You know, I told someone, what I don't like about social media is I didn't realize how many of my friends I secretly didn't like. Because there's all this stuff about them I didn't know, but now I know it, and now I'm having a hard time seeing not the person in front of me, but the offensive political Facebook post they made earlier this week. We do this. I mean, I, I talk to people. We start cutting people off when we start being offended by their politics on social media. You see how warped this is? So much less than laying down our lives for our friends, man, if you post something from Fox News or NBC News, then I'm just not really even going to be your friend. We even literally have a, friend, a word for it. I'm going to unfriend you. Just a weird thing to have people apologize. I got to apologize to you, Pastor. Why? I unfriended you this week. What? What a unique thing to be accused of. There's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. Second thing we do, we practice, in addition to loving one another, is we serve one another. Galatians 5.13, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Man, that's a tough one, isn't it? Okay, I get it. Bitterness, rage, and anger are a little overt. Brawling is certainly overt, you know, you know. You know, if, if Mike doesn't like me, he could just come in and ignore me, or he could clock me upside the jaw, okay? The second message I'm going to hear a little more clearly than the first one. So brawling, yeah, that's a little overt. But every form of malice? Come on. I get to keep a little of that in my heart, don't I? So what Paul says, how many Christians have been so preoccupied with their language habits or their drinking habits or their eating habits or their viewing habits but completely ignore the malice that has made its home in their hearts you see what religion does it signs us up for adventures and missing the point it will convince you that if you don't say as many wordy dirds that you used to say you can ignore the malice that exists and lives in your heart it's foolish. 
it's a lot easier to stop saying TT and doo-doo than it is to get malice out of my heart to where it's not welcome. But this is where the real transformation happens. So get rid of... Uh, Oh, I, I read the wrong one, didn't I? I apologize. We jumped to kindness. I'll, I'll jump up to serving in a minute. Get rid of all um, bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice, and just be kind and compassionate to one another. You, I just love this. You don't have to have all the answers. Just be kind. Just be compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And it's really important that we acknowledge, do you know why the Apostle Paul tells believers they need to practice forgiving one another? Because we offend one another. I mean, because you all are the group that I live the majority of my life with, I can sincerely say you're the most offensive group that I know. And if you can't say that about me, then we actually don't have a friendship. You see a projective version of myself that I've thrown out there that I would love for you to believe is me, but until you've walked with me to the point that I've made you want to kick the cat or slam the door, then you really haven't fully known Artie Favre because I give plenty of opportunities for that. It's my Judas ministry, and I'm pretty committed to it. Yeah. It's there because we can't have this silly, naive idea that community means we agree with each other all the time and that we don't hurt one another and that we don't offend one another. It is not if, but when. It will happen. So much so that when I get a new friendship, I often say, what are we going to do when this goes sour? And they're like, well, that's kind of negative. That's not a negative thing. No, it's just realistic. It will go sour. I found it more helpful if we establish what we're going to do when it does. What kind of things are we going to believe about one another from other people before we come talk to one another? Well, what's the limit here we're going to put? And, and can we make an agreement? that we're going to, so, so, I mean, even putting that in there, because that's the reality of life. We have to learn to forgive one another because we are going to hurt and offend one another. And the Christ community, especially when we are experimenting, is it possible to have community around the large tent of Jesus and our mutual love for him rather than a narrow tent of doctrinal fidelity, then it's going to be even harder because that means we're welcoming people who have diabolically opposing views. And we're saying, you can keep your views. You don't have to conform, but you've got to be willing to stand in the communion line and serve communion to your brother or your sister. That's what we are endeavoring to do, which means we're going to have to get really good at forgiving one another. Then, then um, serving one another. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, I went up, the one I skipped, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to, look at this, indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. One of the primary means ordained for us to overcome the addictions of the flesh is to just get out there and serve other people. Well, it doesn't require a lot of discipline and nasal gazing and so forth. It might. 
And I believe in those programs. I've participated in those programs. And I've sent people to those programs. And I've facilitated those programs. I'm not down on that. But what I'm saying is ultimately, the way we are free from the preoccupations of the flesh is by living a life of service. And living a life of service will bring liberty from the addiction to the flesh in a way that nothing else can. It is about getting outside of ourselves, even our shame over our addictions and our sins and not disqualifying ourselves from service because we're imperfect. Because that's, honestly, it's the first thing to do. I can't go serve, certainly not in a ministry capacity because it's just gonna double down on my shame and guilt. So we withdraw and we hide. No, you commit that sin, you feel the shame, you say whatever words of formula of repentance you've created for yourself because we all have a formula for how we confess our sins. Don't pretend like we don't. And then you get up and you go love in Jesus' name, even though it makes you feel like a hypocrite. It's okay, because that's not hypocrisy. Why? Because you're not pretending. You are a mixture. You're both a broken person, but you're also a person who really loves Jesus and therefore a person who really loves other people. And it's okay to mature through the contradictions of who you are. It is not this or that. And listen, that is hard for me to say. I am OCD or no CD. Those are the only two gears that I know. So it's been a lot for me to realize, man, there are some actually wise ways of living that exist between these two polar opposites. Um, so uh, again, the forgiveness is a reiteration of, of Ephesians 4.32, but I wanted to pull it out, so let it stand on its own. So we love one another, we serve one another, we're kind to one another, we forgive one another, and we bear one another's burdens. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Someone disagrees with you, someone's making a life child choice that you personally think is unhealthy or maybe offensive, find out their burden and carry it with them. The goal there is not to speak condemnation and rejection. The goal is to stand with your brother or sister and figure out how God might be calling you to carry that burden with them. And it's a pretty miraculous thing because if you pick up and carry that burden with someone, you might come to this revelation, I would be handling this just the way they're handling it if I had been having to carry this on my own for so many years. I'm amazed. 100% of the time, someone has said across from me that I assumed I had deep disagreement with. And after just maybe an hour of hearing their story, all of a sudden my black and white categories have melted into gray. And I don't have such bold judgment anymore. And the vast majority of the time, not only have I said I can't judge them for that, and I'm not trying to play a preaching card here, I really sincerely have this sense, I don't believe that I would be handling it as well as they are if that burden had been mine to carry. Vast majority of the time that's how I feel. So, so we learn to make a different approach to our, the burdens around us. Rather than withdrawal, rejection, ideological conflict, we figure out how to live a life. We pick that up and we carry it with someone. Show honor, Romans 12, 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. If our ideology 
cannot be shared while affirming someone's dignity. Whatever it is, it's not rooted in Christ. And it doesn't matter if it's in opposition to someone else. If it's rooted in Christ, it always restores dignity. This is why Jesus, we know, we see examples in the Gospels where he can speak healing and it happens, and yet he chooses to touch the untouchable over and over and over again. Why? Because he's not just healing, he's restoring dignity to this human being. That's the model that we've been given. And look, do this little evaluation. The next time you get in conflict with your partner, were you right? Here's how it works for me. <laughs> Artie, were you right? Clearly, I was. <laughs> was she wrong? Quite evidently, she was wrong. Okay, so ideological morality is on your side. Absolutely. Moral high ground up here. And the breeze is oh so sweet. And in the process, were you honoring? Nope, nearly 100% of the time. And to be honest, the more right I assume I am, the more dishonor I will justify. That's why it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because it's all right there together, feeding off of one another. More of my good justifies more of my evil. Gotta stop eating from that tree, folks. That's bad fruit. Let's get back and be nourished by the tree of life, which is the way of Jesus. And finally, we encourage one another. Thessalonians 5.11, if the worship team will go ahead and begin to make their way up for communion. Therefore, encourage one another, build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. Whether your community is you're going to go over the lunch with someone or you're part of an established community group that's already been meeting, or maybe this is going to be your first time stepping into community at Christ Community Church tonight when you go to your group, my biggest prayer is first and foremost in this next 12 weeks, which will be six meetings every other week, I pray that we will emerge from that experience having encouraged one another and having been encouraged by one another having built one another up and having been built up by one another. Seven practices. Take each morning during your newly established prayer time that we've been talking about for weeks and months and years. Take time to pray. Ask, this is a fun experience, folks. Even you sensationists that aren't sure whether or not we Pentecostals and Charismatics are just hearing voices in our head or what, give this experiment a shot. Ask God to show you how to pursue one practice per day. Just one. Create the space, Lord, make me aware when it's here. Now, if it's your first time to do this practice and you're married, then you have some limitations on you. If you're married, Pursue a different practice for your partner every single day this week. If you start now, you'll be done by Saturday because there are seven days for seven practices. It's really convenient. And then take a moment to reflect on your week. Share what you've learned about yourself with spiritual friends. 
Share what you've learned about the way of Jesus by practicing the way of Jesus with another friend of Jesus so that you can be mutually edifying and build one another up so that you can take your individual practice and begin to create community out of it. The uh, prayer team, would you come up? So there'll be people up here ready to pray for you. The communion elements are around the church if you would like to take communion.